Well, we are um, continuing on this morning in our series on the Gospel of Matthew. And today, where we pick up is on some of the most famous passage in all of Scripture. The Sermon on the Mount is indeed uh, one of the most famous pieces of literature in the whole world. And the Beatitudes that we're going to look at today is the most famous portion of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus, when he, uh, before he preached the Sermon on the Mount, we saw a summary of his ministry back in chapter 4, verse 23. I think it'll be on the screen, but hear what verse 23 says. And he went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. That describes Jesus' ministry, preaching, teaching, healing. But look at this. In chapter 9, at the end of chapter 9, in verse 35, look at what it says. And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. Well, what I want you to see is this. In chapter 4, it gives a summary of Jesus' ministry. In chapter 9, the end does. So what happens in between there is a picture of what he's doing. It's a picture of his ministry. It's a picture of him preaching, teaching, and healing. It shows us those things. Chapters 5, 6, and 7. Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' most famous teaching. It's 111 verses. We see a parallel account in Luke's gospel. Luke gives what we call the sermon in the low place. It's only 30 verses, but it parallels what Jesus taught here. Now, some have tried to reconcile these things and say, perhaps Jesus preached on a mountain, and on top of the mountain there was a low place. And therefore, he was preaching on a low place and a mountain at the same time. And that's plausible. I believe what's more likely is that Jesus preached this exact same message over and over and over again. This is the message he came to bear. He preached it on the mountain. He preached it on the low place. He preached it several places. This is the preaching of Jesus as he traveled. In chapters 8 and 9, we get 10 miracles by Jesus. We see 10 significant healings that he does. So those two statements, his summary statements between them, we have his preaching and we have his healing ministry. We see what those things look like here in Matthew's gospel. So today we come to the preaching of the king. So I want us to read this passage. It's a well-known passage. If you've been in church, grown up in church, you've undoubtedly heard it. Many of you have been in studies where you've studied it. Yet John Stott says this about it. He said, it's probably the best known teaching of Jesus, yet some of the most misunderstood and some of the least applied. So let's listen in to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. If you would please stand. We're going to read chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, and it starts with this. Seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness 
for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for they persecuted the prophets who are before you. This is the word of God for the people of God. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. God, your word declares that all men are like grass and all our glories like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But your word, God, your word stands forever. And may this be the word that is faithfully preached today. God, we recognize unless you speak, there's nothing of significance that will be spoken today. So speak, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, this is commonly called the Beatitudes. That's a Latin word. I've heard some jokingly say the Beatitudes are attitudes that you should be. Not the best joke and not the proper translation of what the word Beatitude means. But there is a thread of truth in that. For the Christian, this should be the attitude that flows out of our life. This should be the reality of who we are. And I think I maybe shouldn't even use the word should. For the Christian, this is who we are, whether we walk in it fully or not. When we look at the Beatitudes, we have to be careful of turning them into a to-do list. I want to be blessed. So if I do these things, then I'll be blessed. That's not how we treat them. These are realities of the redeemed, of the Christian, of those who've trusted Christ. This is the reality of who we are and what should flow from our lives and how we should live. The thing is, is we often roam from it. We forget. And instead of living with our heavenly reality, we often live more in light of our earthly condition. And here he's showing this is who we are and how we're to live. Now, starting off here, the word beatitude, it means happy or blessed. Some translations have actually uh, said happy are the poor in spirit. They've used the word happy all the way down. Now, I think that's a little bit, while there's truth there, it's a little bit misleading because happy doesn't fully get what's happening here. This is the blessing of the child of God, and entailed in that, there is a happiness we should have. There's a joyfulness when we are walking in the fullness of the Spirit and walking this way. So yes, this should be the reality for us. Now, notice it says in verse 1, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and sat down. His disciples came to him. Now notice what's going on. There are crowds following Jesus. He's got a large group of people following him. And it appears as if he wants to withdraw from the crowds and go teach his disciples. I believe this message that he's going to give, the Sermon on the Mount, is aimed at the believer. It's aimed at those who have trusted in Christ. It's aimed at those who would listen to this and go, we believe you're the Messiah. That's the intention of the Sermon on the Mount. It's not aimed at those who don't believe. It's aimed at those who do believe. 
But notice this, the crowds are there. There's a, uh, crowds all around. In fact, in Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, listen to what it says, chapter 7, verse 28 and 29. When Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching as one who had authority, not as their scribes. So the crowds were there listening to Jesus. He's, the crowds have gathered to come and hear him, but he's teaching his followers. Now I say that because I think the church is a lot like that. The word church has the idea of the body of Christ. That's what the Bible often uses. It refers to the church as the body of Christ. So who is the church? Well, the universal church is made up of every single person who has confessed their sin and trusted in Christ. That's what it means to be a part of the body of Christ, to be a part of the church. To be a part of a local church means I'm identifying with this particular body here and going to covenant to be with them and love them and care for them and do life together and uh, be a part of this fellowship. But the universal church is made up of all who believe in Christ. Now, in the church, when we gather on Sunday morning, we are speaking to believers. We have uh, worship. Worship is worship done by those who've trusted in Christ. That, that's the aim, but know this. There's those here today, and you may be one of those who haven't trusted Christ. You wouldn't count yourself a believer, and we want you to know you are welcome here. We're actually very glad you are here. We welcome non-believers into the church to, to, to come and be the church. But the aim of the church, listen, in Ephesians 4.12, it says that the purpose of the church is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So the job of the church is to equip the saints. Now, when we hear the word saint, many of us think of some person who's died, who did great things for God, and has been recognized, and now their title is saint. Well... The word truly should be used for any believer. Any Christian, biblically speaking, is called a saint. So when I look out at the church and I say to you, you are the saints. If you're a Christian, that's true of you. That's who we are. We are the saints. So here, the church's purpose is to equip the saints to go do ministry. When we leave here, you're going to go out and you're going to work in places, be around people who do not trust the Lord. And it's important that we gather to encourage one another by God's Word. That we gather to worship together God. And that we look to our left and right and we go, there are other people here who believe in God. Who trust God. When I go out in that world, people may look at me like I'm crazy for trusting God. But there's others here who worship God Almighty. So when Jesus here was teaching, He's teaching His disciples. That's who He's aiming at. But the crowds... And certainly unbelievers were there. And that's how we are as a church. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ, we do want to know you're welcome. And we hope here's what you'll experience. A group of people that are different from one another. Different nations, different backgrounds, different ages. Who many would say don't have a whole lot of things in common. But the thing we have in common is that we worship Jesus Christ, that we've been redeemed. And that we love each other. We encourage each other. We build each other up. We take time for one another. We hope you'll experience the body of Christ living and in action. 
So here, Jesus is about to speak to his followers, and he sits down. That's a common way that you would teach. A Jewish teacher would teach seated. In a synagogue, you would stand for God's word. We stand for God's word here. But then the teacher would sit when he gave his commentary on God's word. It says that he opened his mouth and taught them. And the first beatitude says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now we often think of this poverty. When we say the word poor, we think of physical poverty, material poverty. That's not what it isn't talking about that here. It's talking about a spirit. A spirit. You're, you're poor in your spirit. You realize this about your spirit. I don't have enough to pay the debt. Whenever a bill comes due, you're out eating at a restaurant, you should have enough to pay that bill, right? And if you don't, you've got a problem. That's what it poor in spirit, the idea is. You realize you, you're in your spirit, you don't have enough to pay the debt that you have. You have a debt before God Almighty, and you cannot pay your sin debt. Here it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the Beatitudes, there's eight of them. The last one has a little add-on. We'll get there at the end. But there's eight Beatitudes, and they're bookended with this same phrase. Both this one, poor in spirit, it says theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and those who are persecuted for righteousness, it says theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I point that out because everything in between, it's all focused on the kingdom of heaven. Now, the phrase kingdom of heaven, if you read the Gospels, you'll hear the phrase kingdom of God. You won't hear that in Matthew's Gospel. He won't use the phrase kingdom of God because a Jewish reader wouldn't want to see the word God say it or written out. They had a such reverence for the name God, they wouldn't say the name God. They wouldn't say the name Jehovah. So right into a Jewish audience, he uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. That's the exact same as the kingdom of God. So here... We start off, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. That word poor has the idea of lowly. You have a lowly spirit because you've come to the reality that no matter how good you are, no matter how smart you are, no matter how much you help others, no matter how many good deeds you do, no, how, no matter how often you attend church, no matter how often you serve at church, no matter what family you're from, you do not have a sufficient funds to pay your debt. You are poor in spirit. You can't pay the debt that you owe to God. William Carey, he's perhaps um, one of the most famous missionaries to ever live. He's, he's famous for a few reasons. He's known as the father of modern missions because he went from England to India in a day and time where there was little mission activity. He went to India and spent his life there. And during his time there, he translated six complete versions of the Bible into six different Indian dialects. Not only did he do that, he translated 29 he translated parts of the Bible into 29 different dialects. So think about that. He learned 29 different Indian dialects, enough to translate some portion, six of them enough to translate the entire Bible. As a result of William Carey's ministry and faithfulness, 
Missionaries spread out all over the world. God used him and his writings and his humble faithfulness to spark a movement that would send missionaries all over the world. But I want you to hear at the end of his life what he had placed on his tombstone. This was placed on his tombstone at his request. Listen to what it says. I think it may be on the screen. He died on June 9th, 1834. A wretched, poor, helpless worm. On thy kind arms I fall. Now what do most people put on their tombstone? They want to boast about things they've done. Faithful husband, faithful father. Started a business, did these things. I want you to declare what we have done in our glory. This man who has accomplished much for God, that God has used mightily on his tombstone, he puts wretched, poor, helpless worm. That feels about as low and as poor a spirit as you can go. But here's what William Carey knew. He knew that however God used him, none of it was due to his greatness or anything in himself. It was God using him. It was God who saved him. And that he throws himself on God's kind arms in death. That's what it means to be poor of spirit. And church, for the Christian, you can't be a Christian if you don't recognize that you're poor in spirit. You have to come and say, I don't have sufficient puns to pay the debt before God. I'm hopeless. I throw myself on the mercy of Jesus Christ, who's paid the price, who can save me, who can redeem me. Now, out of that we see the next beatitude. It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The opposite of mourning is to exalt yourself. Here, as Christians, we are those who mourn. First, you mourn your sin. When you look and you say, I don't have a, I'm not sufficient to pay the debt I have to God, you mourn and you weep and you're broken over it. The Christian also mourns over sin we see in the world. Many of you mourn a lot when you see the impacts of sin and people who have disease, people who are hungry, when you see the impact of sin and fighting when you see the impact of sin in your own life, in the lives of your loved ones, when you see how sin plays out in this world and there's people that don't get along, when you see the impact of sin playing out, we mourn it. We grieve it. It says those who mourn, they will be comforted. So know this, Christian. My wife will sometimes say to me that she, when she sees those who are in desperate situations, it makes her cry. And she says she doesn't want to forget it. Doesn't want to pull away from the tears of seeing somebody in a hard situation and mourning over it. Because here's the truth, God will comfort. God is the one who comforts those who mourn. So if you're mourning, when you see something, know that God will be your comfort. That's the reality. Blessed are those who mourn. And what's so interesting about these, it's completely different from the world tells us. We're told here, blessed are the poor in spirit. The world says, blessed are those who have self-confidence. Blessed are those who are self-assured. We say here, blessed are those who mourn. The world says, blessed are those 
who have all the fun, who live it up, who are part. No, blessed are those who mourn. And the third one we see, blessed are the meek. Now, the word meek has the idea not of weakness, but of humility. It's the opposite of arrogance. Blessed are those who meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Psalm 37.11 says, But the meek shall inherit the earth and delight themselves in an abundance of peace. A meek person realizes this. He's God. I'm not God. He's God. I'm not God. I'm not in control of everything. Yes, God uses us. He does use us for His purposes. But we can't control everything in this world. No one can. And when we look, we go, I'm not in charge, God. You are. I have to trust you rather than myself. You see, the arrogant goes, I can do it. If it's up to me, I can figure it out. The meek go, God's will be done. Use me as you see fit, God. It says, they shall inherit the earth. Here in verse 6, it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What do people hunger and thirst for in our world? They hunger for power. They hunger for fame, popularity. They hunger for money. They hunger for pleasure. They hunger for ease and contentment in life. There's a lot that people hunger for, but here the, the, the Christian hungers and thirsts for righteousness. You see, we realize that we are not righteous, but we hunger and we thirst for it. We desire to be righteous. We do not want to live in sin. We want to live a righteous life. And Jesus gives us his righteousness. He imputes his righteousness to us. The psalmist, he wrote Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. One of the psalmists, he lived up at the base of the Jordan River far from the temple. And he couldn't go down to Jerusalem to see the temple very much. And here's what he wrote. He says, as the deer pants for streams of flowing water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. That's what the Christian does. We thirst for the living God. We thirst for righteousness. That's what our soul craves. He says, next, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We've been given much mercy. God has been incredibly merciful to us. In the Old Testament, the word for mercy is used more than 150 times. 90% of those are speaking of God's mercy toward us. God is merciful toward us. We deserve eternal separation from God because of our sin, yet He is merciful. And we are to extend that same mercy to others. Now, I'll tell you, in mercy, it's often a hard one for us to balance in the Christian life. You see, God is both merciful and just. God is merciful and just. So when we take a look at our lives for a parent, does a parent go, I'm going to be merciful, and therefore I'm not going to discipline my children ever? Is that real mercy? No, we have justice in this world. For a, uh, somebody who works in the government to say, I'm not going to enforce the laws upon the people. Is that merciful? No, we, we, we have justice. For an employer to say, hey, I'm paying a fair wage and I expect somebody to do good work. 
What does it mean to be merciful yet just if they are not doing that? In the church, if a pastor falls into sin, what does it look like for the elders to be merciful yet just and say, this cannot be tolerated? You see, mercy and justice, they're one of those tensions we have. But here, we're talking about God's mercy toward us, and we extend mercy toward others, and we show them the one who is merciful. But this doesn't mean there's not times that we extend justice and say, no, that's not right. You're going to harm yourself if you keep going that direction. Actually, that is a form of mercy. You're merciful to somebody when you see them headed toward destruction. If I see my child running to put their hand on a hot stove, it's merciful for me and just to push them out of the way. That's what we often do as Christians. And here, he's saying, God has been merciful to you and you will receive mercy. The next one. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. All of our hearts are corrupt. Our hearts is what our life flows from. Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So our heart really gauges our life. Heart's the center. It says here, blessed are the pure in heart. You cannot be pure in heart unless Jesus gives you a pure heart. He gives you his heart and makes you pure. And as he does so, you begin to see God. Why do many people pick up the Bible and go, it doesn't make any sense to me? I don't understand it. I do believe having it taught helps. But one, many people approach the word of God without a pure heart, without coming and saying, God, show me, lead me, guide me. This is your word. Why can't people often see the direction that God is leading them? Because they're not walking in the fullness of the pure heart God has given them. With a pure heart, you can see things differently. I've seen people open up the Bible and they'll pick it apart and they'll say, here's 10 reasons we don't believe it's true. And I've seen a pure of heart person look at the Bible and go, there is no way a human could fits together so seamlessly and so perfectly. Now we, the pure in heart, see God and they see Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. That's who you and I are called to be. I want you to look at this progression. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Pay it, we're poor. What do we do? Blessed are those who mourn. We mourn over the fact that we can't pay our debt. That makes us meek, humble. I can't do anything in myself. It's all got to be God. If you're going to save me, it's got to be God. And then we hunger and we thirst for something we don't have. We don't have righteousness. We hunger and thirst for it. And God's the one who gives us His righteousness out of His mercy. God is merciful to us. And when He's merciful to us, he gives us a pure heart. This is a picture of conversion walking through these things. We receive a pure heart from God himself. And then guess what we become when you have a pure heart? You become a peacemaker. What's an ultimate peacemaker? One who speaks the truth that we have rebelled against a holy living God. And yet we have a way to be made right with that holy living God. Through His Son, Jesus Christ. 
That's who we're to be. We are peacemakers. We can't save anybody, but we can point them and declare to them the truth of the one who can save them and point them to the one who will make peace between man and God. We become peacemakers. That's what we're called to be. Peacemakers, it says, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, there's a common misbelief that all people are children of God, but the Bible simply doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that we are born rebels from God, children of the enemy, and were adopted into the household of God, adopted as children of God, adopted as sons and daughters of God. So here it says, they shall be called sons of God. These are those who've been converted. That's who Jesus is speaking to. And in verse 10, it says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you are a peacemaker, and again, this is a reality for a Christian. This isn't something you can go perform in a checklist you can do. This is something that as you draw near toward the Lord and you walk more closely with Him, it becomes more and more a reality that is lived out in your life. And here, He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Know this. If you are walking in obedience to the Lord, and if you are seeking to make peace between humanity and God, declaring that message, you will be persecuted. That will happen. The Christian will endure persecution. The Bible doesn't hide that we will be persecuted. We shouldn't be surprised when we're persecuted. Now, persecution can look a lot of different ways. We often think of physical persecution. And that type of persecution is certainly a reality in our world and people have it and deal with it. Many of us, probably the majority, we will not endure physical persecution, but there certainly are those who, who have. Listen to these stats. I looked it up on Open Door. Um, this was the stats they gave. They track persecution in the world. 360 million Christians suffered significant persecution for their faith last year. In 2021, 360 million Christians, that's up from 260 million the year before. That's one in every seven believer in Jesus Christ endured significant persecution for their faith. Every day in 2021, an average of more than 16 believers were killed for following Jesus. That's close to 6,000 martyrs that died last year, a 24% increase from the year before. As I mentioned earlier, there's a response that everyone has to Jesus. We, we are those who come and worship Jesus. And there's those who are indifferent. And then there's those who seek to destroy Jesus, the name of Jesus, the people of Jesus. And we see that that's growing. Don't be surprised when you endure persecution, church. To our students, when you go into your schools and you stand on the principles of the gospel, the principles of your faith, oh, you will be persecuted. There will be people who look at you and think, what are you doing? 
Why aren't you doing what everybody else is doing? Why aren't you talking the way everybody else is talking? Why aren't you participating in those things? You will endure some form of persecution. To those who work in places with very few Christians, when there's a pressure to just pay that little extra to get it done faster, when there's that pressure to just turn a blind eye to something that's being done that's not quite right, this will make it go quicker. And you stand up and say, hey, I'm, I'm not going to be a part of that. There's a persecution involved. For the family that says, hey, we're going to follow the Lord and trust Him. There's going to be persecution involved. We all encounter persecution. It's a reality of your life. Don't be surprised by it. But notice what Jesus says. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. We're only righteous because of Jesus. And when we're persecuted because of him, Jesus says, you are blessed. There's a blessing in that. The disciples counted it joy to be persecuted. Nobody in here enjoys persecution. I think that's one thing I can say we all have in common. Nobody in here wants to be persecuted. Nobody in here enjoys persecution. We all want to avoid it, run from it, do whatever we can. But the Bible tells us it is coming. And if you walk faithfully, you are going to endure it, you are going to encounter it. So don't be surprised. And know this. Jesus says you are blessed in the midst of it. Isn't that amazing? As you're encountering and tasting persecution, you are blessed in it. Look at what he says in verse 11. Now, verse 11 is after the beatitude. Some will say it's another beatitude, but it's actually coming out of this persecution beatitude. And Jesus turns and he starts using the word you. And he uses it over and over again. You, you, you. Look at what he says in verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all sorts of evil against you falsely on my account. People are going to utter all sorts of lies, tell you things that aren't true on account of Christ. And Jesus says you are blessed when that happens. Look at what he says in verse 12. Rejoice and be glad. Again, the disciples were persecuted and they come out in the book of Acts and they count it joy and blessing that they were found worthy to endure persecution. So, brothers and sisters, as you endure persecution, whatever it may look like, maybe it's persecution in your family. Maybe you have family that's not believers. Maybe it's persecution where you work, persecution in your school, persecution in your neighborhood. It can look a lot of different ways. But when you endure that, he says, rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. Now there's different takes on what the rewards in heaven will look like. But I want you to know this. The Bible is very clear that there is reward in heaven. Now, for the Christian, we're all going to get there. There's going to be no more mourning, no more weeping in heaven. But there is some sort of reward. And remember this. As you endure that persecution, as you walk through it, you can rejoice and be glad. Why? 
You're going to have a great reward in heaven. Christ is with you. He's present. He will never leave us. He'll never forsake us. This is a picture of the reality of how we live. I love that Jesus personalizes it here. You, you, you. So let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. It is good. It is gracious. And Lord, I I confess, even as I walk through the Sermon on the Mount, as I walk through the Beatitudes, I find myself struggling to adequately, adequately get at the depth and the richness and the beauty and all that's there. I find myself struggling to understand the depth of the reality of of who we are and how we live in this. So Lord, I pray that as we come forward to take communion, we be reminded of the blessings that we have in Christ, of the blessings of who we are, and that you would help us to walk more fully in that. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who's never confessed their sin to you, that today would be the day. And Lord, I pray if there's any here who have sin heavy on their heart, that they would confess before they come to the table. Lord, if there's those here who have sinned against a brother or sister, that they would confess that so they can walk in freedom. Lord, we thank you that you've provided us with a tangible, physical reminder of your sacrifice in bread and juice that we get to taste it, we experience it, and we're reminded of what you've done for us. So Lord, now as we come to take communion, remind us of your goodness and mercy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.